0: Luckily, I'm able to present to you Richard Rogers himself, the composer of, I don't have to tell you, some of the greatest scores that we've known in the last 25 years, uh, Oklahoma, Carousel, and South Pacific, to say nothing of the King and I and a host of others. Dick, we're delighted to have you here. It's nice to be here. I'd like to start, first of all, Dick, with a very strong feeling I have, and that is that you are whether you know it or not, and although you don't wear a mustache, you are the waltz king of America. And this has come about in a very original and wonderful way. You have written waltzes, which I think are exclusively American, and for the first time introduced into music a new feeling for a form that had been brought to its peak by Johann Strauss. Uh, What do you have to say in your own defense on that point? I... I think I can defend myself in this way.
1: Uh, the three-quarter time signature has been sadly neglected in popular music, and I felt for a long time that uh, it had more validity that it had been given a chance to show. I think there's possibly even more energy, vitality, in three-quarter time than there is in four-quarter time, for instance.
0: Well, it's, of course, it's because you have that conviction and that feeling that your waltzes have turned out to be the wonderful things they are. Uh, I'd like to tell you a story which involves a Columbia artist. His name is Joseph Segetti, the violinist, and I met him one day in, in a, a Cleveland railroad station. He was waiting for a train, and Yoshka, as he's affectionately known, Travels a little bit like a Chinese family moving before a flood There are oranges falling out of his pockets Half-finished sandwiches wrapped in wax paper And I went up to him and I said, "Uh, how are you, Yoshka? And he said, oh, so-so I said, what's the matter? I couldn't sleep I said, why couldn't you sleep? He said, there's some tune, I don't know what it is But I can't get it out of my head I said, what is it? He said, I don't know, it keeps going down, down, down I said, "We'll sing it to him." He says, "Well, it's something like this: dum 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 dum." I understand what he means. It, "Lover," of course, that's the name of that tune, is one of the most uh, entrancing of all your waltzes. What show was that in? I've forgotten. Well, that moment. wasn't in a show, Goddard. That was in a moving picture, and it
1: was written as an, as an incidental bit. It wasn't ever meant to be a hit. Uh, Jeanette MacDonald sang it, driving in a one-horse trap through the woods. And actually, she sang the song to the horse. Had a different lyric. Well, an awful lot of horses have caught on since. (laughs) It uh, was picked up, and we wrote a commercial, apparently, lyric,
0: and it got to be popular. Has that happened with a lot of your songs? I think it has, hasn't it? Oh, you mean The Sleepers? So-called, yes.
1: Yes, a great many.
0: I think perhaps some of the reason that your songs have their staying power is they are, just as you said, they are not written to be hits. I have the feeling that people who go out to write hits seldom do. Well, I I think that's
1: partly true. But I do think that what happens with these so-called sleepers is that a small band of fans pick them up. They're people who have a certain slightly deeper understanding than the average man in the street and They become fans and play these things publicly and semi-publicly A lot of them are what we call saloon songs They play them in these little nightclubs after hours maybe just one pianist and A certain small band of people learn these songs and go out and sing them and play them and eventually they become popular
0: I know exactly what you mean, Dick, because you know that I have been one of your fans for a long time. It's a source of, of uh, not real irritation, but slight irritation to discover now, as I'm getting older, that songs which I thought were my private possession now have a large <laughs> public. Uh, little songs like uh, My Funny Valentine, which uh, I was able to embarrass people who didn't know it, and now is a well-known song, and I'm delighted that it is, of course. Uh, let's continue for a moment with this waltz thing. I really think that your contribution here is probably even greater than you think. Uh, I tell you why I say that. The The waltz tempo, as as you have analyzed it correctly, does have a special vigor of its own, but it seems to me that in traveling around the world, as I do sometimes, I hear more of your waltzes than any other type of song that you've written. It does have some kind of an international stamp, and uh, you have certainly moved the center of waltzes to America. I think we ought to play some of these. Uh, On this wonderful record that you've made with the New York Philharmonic, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, is a medley of waltzes, which includes Lover, Falling in Love with Love, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, and Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. Let's hear a bit of that. Of course, Dick, on this record, you're conducting one of the world's great orchestras, the New York Philharmonic. I can't f- think of a better way for you to present your music. I've long felt that your music deserved the kind of treatment that an orchestra of this dimension and stature can bring it. How did you feel conducting the New York Philharmonic? Well, I think I the, the primary
1: sensation, I felt, was one of intimidation. On whose part? On your part? On My part? I was being intimidated. I don't think that you can face an organization like this that plays so superbly and has played under such wonderful conductors. Without being intimidated, I think only a fool would feel confident. But Uh, I'm sure sure they put you at your ease after the first few bars. Well, we got to know each other pretty well. As a matter of fact, I had played with almost all of these men at one time or another, uh, conducting at the stadium and in various... Uh, th- various theaters, some of them, a great many of them had played, and I knew almost all of them, but I'd never played with them as the Philharmonic Society of New
0: York, so it made quite a difference to me. Well, tell me, what, what was your reaction? I'm sorry to give you a naive question like this. What was your reaction to hearing your music played by over a hundred men? Uh, that must be quite a different sound. The usual orchestra in the musical theater is... Well, at the most, 28 or 30, isn't it? Around 30. And uh, here you are, here you were, hearing your music played by 100, over 100 men. I, I would have thought that that alone would have of given you the feeling of, of of being overwhelmed.
1: Well, it was slightly over three times as exciting <laughs> as hearing it played by a theater
0: orchestra. Dick, you started out, as if I remember correctly, doing a lot of conducting. I even remember that you conducted... Once, I may be mistaken, for a, a clown, a wonderful clown named Mr. Robbins. Is that right? No, I never... Yes, I did.
1: I did. Yes. You're right. Uh, I forgot the tour that I'd, I made when I was 19 years old. I was going to what is now the Juilliard School of Music, and it was then the Institute of Musical Art. And uh, I, I, can you grant sabbatical leaves to students? Anyway, they, well, let, they, they let me
0: it, off. It's called delinquency now, I think. Yes.
1: Well, I was juvenile enough. So I was still in my teens. Uh, they let me off for a few months to go out conducting a combination musical comedy and vaudeville show. And one of the acts was A.A. A. Robbins. So I, I did conduct for him. Uh, it would interest you to know that another act that I conducted for was a man by the name of Fred Allen. Oh, that is interesting. Did he sing? No, he didn't sing. He... he carried a band Joe on stage with him, and he used to sit on the footlights and let his legs dangle over into the pit. And he told jokes, and he was just as funny then as he is
0: now. I bet he was. Uh, Dick, on this wonderful record that you've made for us with the New York Philharmonic, uh, is a, an example of what I would call your exotic music, and you've written a good deal of it in South Pacific, and particularly in The King and I. And, of course, I'm referring to the March of the Siamese Children. And I know that you have some special feelings about so-called exotic music. And I think uh, our people would be interested in hearing about that.
1: Uh, I feel quite strongly, Garden, that it's impossible and fatuous for an American composer to try and write like a Japanese composer or a Siamese composer or a French composer. I think that if he's trying to say musically what he feels and sees and believes about another culture, he must do it through his own ears and with his own implementation, with what he knows about music. I hope this makes sense. If Grant Wood were to go to Japan and come back with a portfolio of paintings of Japanese life, you'd see Japan, all right, but you would also see Grant Wood if he tried to do Japanese prints, I think they'd be pretty awful, but I think he'd be too smart to try. This is only the way I see these little little boys and girls in Siam in the 1860s.
0: But the fact of the matter is, strangely enough, that it does suggest Siamese music tours, and you do get the feeling uh, of it being uh, a part of Siamese culture. I think that's very interesting, and I think, by the way, your theory is completely correct and is proven by the March of the Siamese Children, which you play on this record, which I'd like to hear a part of now. Dick, let's go from the music of Siam, or rather your music of Siam, to your music of America. Now, here, you're on home grounds, and you can't very well claim any exemption on, on that grounds. I'm talking of... Uh, perhaps your most favorite and your best-known ballet piece, Slaughter on Tenth Avenue. I know that had a very slow start with the public, but I also know that now it's a genuine part of the American uh, musical repertoire. I also know it was in the show On Your Toes, and you wrote it in, when was that written? Uh, 1935. Dick, did you consciously write it as a ballet
1: Oh, yes. It was written as part of the play. As a matter of fact, On Your Toes was the first musical show that used ballet as part of the story. They had had occasional ballets and reviews, but uh, no ballet had ever been an integrated part of a book musical comedy. And uh, this was written... Well, as a matter of fact, the synopsis, the story of...
0: Slaughter on 10th Avenue, long before there was any music. Well, the point I wish to make was that I think this was really one of the first times that a uh, theater composer, I mean a Broadway theater composer, if I can use that term, had written a ballet specifically uh, for the show. Uh, What I'm trying to say is that very often the ballets in the musical theater are pastiches that are made up of the various songs that you have heard or are about to hear. That was usually the case, wasn't it? And it still is, right? Really it still is, yes. But this is a composed ballet for a specific dance, and a very successful one, too. And not only was On Your Toes the first of the ballet subject matter shows, but I think it set a pattern that has, is still being followed practically every day in Hollywood, if not in New York theater. Dick, here in the United States... Unlike uh, the European tradition, it's not often that the government takes cognizance of what goes on with our composers, but I think it's a signal victory that in your case, you were requested to write a piece by the United States Navy, and of course that's Victory at Sea, another of the works which appears on this record. Can you tell us something about the origin of it and how you happened to write it? The Navy had something like 60 million
1: feet of film that had collected from our allies in the last war and, uh, and enemies. They wanted a series on television that would utilize this film and tell the story of naval operations from the beginning of the last war until its end. They needed music for it, and they were good enough to come to me
0: and ask me if I would write it. Well, I think they were wise enough to come to you and ask you if you'd write it. But I know that many of our listeners will recognize it in Victory at Sea, a tune which they know under another title as No Other Love, which was a great hit. Can you tell us about that coincidence?
1: Well, it isn't a coincidence. It was a chain of events. Uh, One of the sequences in Victory at Sea had to do with South America. And I thought that would be appropriate, since part of it went ashore, to write a tango, which I did. And there was a Sunday broadcast of this particular sequence. And Monday morning we started to get mail. People wanted to know what this music was. It had no lyric. And, as I say, it was simply incidental music. Uh, There was a good deal of this. The publishers were interested. And I had a recording made and sent it to Oscar Hammerstein with the suggestion that he might like to write a lyric for it and we could put the song in Me and Juliet. Well, he did that. The lyric was called No Other Love and the song went into Me and Juliet and was fairly
0: successful. It certainly was fairly successful. Well, Dick, uh, I think we ought to hear that section of Victory at Sea Uh, because it's interesting to people who will know the song to hear it in its original form. Well, of course, that's only one aspect of Victory at Sea. What about the other kind of music? Was this a new experience for you to write uh, this kind of, we might call, background music for a a number of moving scenes, uh, many of them involving not only our Navy, but tremendous war effort that was put forth by our country?
1: It wasn't exactly background music, This was an understanding that I had with the people who made the the film for broadcasting, and that was that it would be collaborative, that I would be allowed to compose, and that the cutting of the film, where it was required, would meet the music halfway, that it was not to be a moving picture scoring job. It was my first job of this kind of composition for anything that was filmed but not completely away from the kind of work that I'd been doing in the musical theater for years. The ballet things, incidental music, all kinds of music for the theater that uh, did not require
0: lyrics. Well, Dick, it's been a tremendous pleasure to have you here today. I only want to add that we at Columbia are terribly proud to be able to present you with the New York Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra in this recording of your own works conducted in a way that we like very much by the composer.
1: I can only say to you, Goddard, that I hope your recording does well, because it will simply make doubly rewarding the tremendous pleasure I've had out of conducting the New York Philharmonic.